Good evening, and welcome everyone to the Alamo Draft House and the eighth season of Airtime. My name is David Fisher. I'll be your moderator tonight. But first, I will turn it over to Miss Kitty Goddard. Um, welcome to Airtime. We are really excited about tonight, first of all, because our guest artist is Chris Bogner, who is the film and culture critic for the Dallas Morning News. Um, I know that he has quite a following, and he has quite a lot to share, so we're all looking forward to that. Also, thank you all for being here on the very first time we've had airtime on a Tuesday. And we will be having airtime on Tuesday for the rest of our season. So please bring your friends and coworkers and encourage them to have some fun on a Tuesday evening with us. Um, before I forget it, I want to remind you that we are hosting, we, AIR, Arts Incubator of Richardson, is hosting Ricochet Arts and Music Festival this Saturday. A good... Yes, you may applaud and hope that we all make it through Saturday. <laughs> anyway, we have on the table back here a schedule of events and a list of our sponsors, so please pick one up. All the events are free, and they take place here at Heights Village, uh, the Public Library, Four Bullets Brewery, and City Line Plaza. They start at 10 o'clock in the morning and go until 9 p.m. Full schedule right here. We hope to see you there. I also want to remind you that the next airtime is in November, and I will tell you just a little more about it um, after the interview. And quickly, we want to recognize our airtime underwriter, and that's Eric Wise and his wife, Deanna, of Weltstar Advisors. And they are here this evening. Thank you both. And I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Kitty. Airtime is produced by Arts Incubator Richardson in partnership with the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema. Airtime is an interview series featuring artists and creative thinkers in the Richardson and Dallas-Fort Worth area. It is funded in part through Eric Wise, through Wealthstar Advisors, and a grant from the City of Richardson Cultural Arts Commission. It's October 17th, 2017. Please help me welcome film and culture critic for the Dallas Morning News, Mr. Chris Wagner. Thank you, sir. You are quite welcome. So uh, the uh, normal, tell us about yourself. Why do you want to work here? Uh, where did you come from? How did you get to it? Uh, and then how, for, I guess, how is, it, how is it you got into journalism and then found your way to books and film and music? Right. Well, all I really know how to do is write. That's the, the dirty secret. So I, I can't weld or can't really be a roofer or any, any real kind of job. So... Um, I studied literature, um, always was a big newspaper reader, and always a big film watcher, and always a big, as an English major, I had to write too many essays, um, you know, more than I can count, and that's maybe the best training possible for a future critic. So it's, it's a way of it combining various different passions and, uh, and making a living. So, uh, I mean, what does it take to be a critic other than being able to write well? I mean, you don't have to necessarily be an artist. You know, the, uh, I guess you have to be a writer in order to write about books, but you don't necessarily have to be a filmmaker to be a film critic. No, and I think it's important also to know that most people who are reading film reviews or journalism about film are not filmmakers either, um, unless you're, you know, you can read certainly specialty magazines like American Cinematographer or, or whatnot. Uh, but to your question, um, I think it takes a few things. Curiosity, I think, is the most important. Um, you, you have to really want to 
know how stories are told and why they're told in a certain way, um, what artists are doing and thinking. Um, it helps to have some background, certainly, in an academic sense. I mean, I did, I studied film. Um, I was, like I said, as an English major as well. I studied some journalism. So like anything else, you, there are pathways academically to, to doing what I do, but no, there's not really. Actually, I did take a critical review class at, at Berkeley when I was there, um, but there's not really a you know movie critic school, for instance. There's cinema studies programs, but those are usually churning out professors, film professors, um, although some critics have, have done those as well. Um, so curiosity, ability to write is always important. Um, ability to engage with both your subject and, and your readers. I think those are all really important things. So this next, next question is a, is a long one, and I guess we've both been in Dallas long enough to remember, well, when there were two or three newspapers, when the Met and the Observer were all covering theater and music yep. and uh, as well, and when there were two theater critics as well as a music and there was uh, two of everything. It was right, like, it was right. like Noah's Ark in the so, arts department. And, and, and so I remember uh, back when I was uh, a director mostly, where y you would have su there were some reviewers who they were the tell it like it is reviewer. And if you got a good review from them, it was amazing and glowing. And if you got a bad review from them, it was ouch. And then there were other reviewers who were more soft pedal, didn't, you know, you wasn't scathing either way. If you knew you had a not a great show, you wanted them to come. Um, so how do you think, and, and, and part of this is just the, news, the newspaper business is shrinking, how do you think that has affected criticism and where do you fall on that spectrum of criticism? That's a great question. I mean, yeah, there used to be so many outlets and so many local Critics. I mean, even the Dallas Times Herald, which shut down before I got here. Actually, I should say, which we killed before I got here. Um, you know, they had a whole stable of critics, some of whom stayed in the area, including the great Robert Wolanski, who's a Dallas Times Herald alumni. Um, so, as far as where I fall on the the spectrum and what the, I mean, I think kind of what you're asking is what is the, you know critics' purpose as well. Um, I'm not really a, I'm, I've never been a hatchet man. I'm not, you know, it sounds like, it's interesting hearing you describe it because it, it almost sounds like a good cop, bad cop game. Um, here's the nice critic who doesn't really mind all that much if you're, you know, if your show is horrible. And then here's the real harsh critic who doesn't like anything. Um, I, th I, I like to think I'm somewhere in the middle of that continuum. Um, I mean, I certainly know what I like. Um, there's a part of me that is just always amazed that any, not just any good movie, but any movie gets made just because of all of the moving parts that go into it. And I think you need to have some sort of appreciation for that. Um, I, I, when I was younger, I probably took more glee in savaging something. I don't really take a lot of pleasure in that. Anymore, and I don't think I have. Um, I don't think I have for a while, actually. I'm also, I'm in a position, and this is actually this may be more to your question as well. Um, we do have so many fewer critics now 
um, at the Dallas Morning News, which means that I can cherry pick to some extent. I kind of look for things that I think look interesting and say, I want to write about that this week. And, um, you know, I'm, they're, I'm usually, they're usually not going to tell me no. So I'm usually not going to seek out the movie that I think will be horrible. Because God knows there are movies that come out every week that are horrible. Um, I just kind of dodge them at this point in my career. So, I mean, and it used to be that the critic had so much power. I mean, the, the, a plus or a thumbs up or thumbs down from the critic in the overnight section was, you know, would make or break the box office. But now with Yelp and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and whatever the flavor of the day is, that critic is just one voice in the mix of it. Sorry, you just said overnight section, and I fell into a blissful, nostalgic reverie. <laughs> um, which is, I remember the overnight section. Oh, those were good times. Um, you know, I, I get the most sense of the, this is going to sound funny, but as a movie, somebody writes about movies and books, which are kind of the two main things I write about now, um, I pick it up mostly from the publicists who are really, they're, they're still very eager to have somebody on staff. And I think preferably me um, writing about the films that they represent um, to the extent that they will call and say, hey, when can you see this? Where can you see this? So apparently they still find great value in that lo kind of locality that we still provide, that we don't have the staff to provide the way we used to, um, but we still t try to provide uh, whenever we can. So it's funny, there are so many, I, I like to say there are more outlets for criticism now online than there have ever been before, and there are fewer paid positions for critics than there have ever been before. It's a very, it's a very odd combination. But it seems so much now they're just trying to get the soundbite or the quote. So, amazing Chris Wagner, where really what you said is the scenery was amazing, right. but the acting was dreadful. It felt amazing when this movie ended because <laughs> I was so happy. <laughs> yes, they, they, they like to, they cherry pick as well. So, I mean, bottom line, what is it in your mind that makes a great film? It's hard to really say. I mean, it's, it's kind of one of those you know it when you see it type of things. I mean, there are movies that have almost no script at all, let, in, let alone a good script, but they're so visually captivating. Um, you know, film is primarily a visual medium, and I think that's what we have to remember. It is a visual art. Um, as far as, you know, at responding to a story, um, certainly it's... It seems like that. It seems like you can tell when the screenwriter and the director and the, the cast are on somewhat at the same page, and they all seem to be working on the same movie. And you didn't have six different screenwriters getting credit for a film that's been in development for 12 years and is finally making it to the big screen. So I, I would say probably like a coherence and unity of vision among the artists, and that's one of those things that's kind of hard to quantify. But you, but you notice it when, when you see it. It feels right. It doesn't feel like you have three conflicting visions um, that are sort of clashing together 
up on the screen. And a lot of movies feel that way still. Well, what about directors who are the screenwriter and the producer and the, it's their entire vision? Right, then a lot of, well, they can't, they still can't perform the parts unless, you know, I guess there are some exceptions to that as well. Um, you know, they can't score the movie. They're usually not shooting the movie or editing the movie. So there's always a lot, it is definitely a team sport. Um, but yeah, sure, if, you're, if you are, you know, a hyphenate, you know, writer, director, producer, um, most of the credit or blame is rightfully going to, to fall on your head. Well, it would seem that that would be sort of the growth of a filmmaker, because they all start out. I mean, I started out in my backyard with my eight millimeter camera, so I was writer, director, producer, and actor. Um, and then as you get bigger and bigger, you have to collaborate with more and more people. I've definitely heard screenwriters say you need to direct if you want to have any kind of, of genuine say in what the movie's going to be like. And that's one reason why, you know, some people, they're great screenwriters who never direct. And we know, you know, they can name many of them, but um, they often say that if you really want it to be your film, um, you got to step behind the camera. So uh, I looked at some of your reviews for uh, Blade Runner 2049. How, how many people have seen Blade Runner? Okay, good, good smattering. So, uh, and I saw it just, the, just last night, actually. So you mentioned that uh, this was indeed a good sequel uh, and that you mentioned other sequels that are just made to keep the franchise moving. Mm -hmm. What do you think makes a good sequel? Was this the TV? Yeah. So yeah, it's a lot of the my actual reviewing these days is on Friday morning on NBC, where I just sit there for a few minutes and discuss the film. Um, I'm doing a lot more feature interview type stories, and um, but I'm going to start doing more reviews soon. But what makes a good sequel? Um, I thought in this case, um, it was a film that honored the original film, but was not entirely beholden to it. So, um, I thought first off, I thought they picked a great filmmaker for it. Um, as soon as I heard that that Denis Villeneuve was going to be the guy who made this, the Blade Runner sequel, I was very happy because I know his visual style, and um, I think he has, in that sense, some things in common with Ridley Scott. So there's a sense of continuity there. Um, it takes, I thought it really, I mean, and I'm really addressing this specific example more than just the general what makes a good sequel. Um, I thought it built on the ideas. I, I thought it took the ideas and went further with them and, and became even more philosophical than what was already a pretty philosophical sci-fi film. Um, you know, and, and yeah, I mean, I think you kind of said it. It didn't feel like it was just there to make more money. And I think a lot of sequels, um, that seems to be the reason for existence. You just keep keep it churning. You get the name brand and you get the franchise and you wait until it is just very obviously exhausted, which usually means that not, you know, less people came to see it and it didn't make as much money as they would have liked. So not to name any names, Star Wars, um, what do you think of, I mean, we're now I didn't in our, say that. like, 11th permutation of Star Wars and yeah. are now getting trailers marketing the out the coming upcoming trailer. Yeah. The trailer is coming soon. Yeah, we're marketing the marketing at this point. The trailer comes out and we're like, hey, everybody, look at the trailer. <laughs> so we're, we're essentially, you know, I don't do that very much, but I always kind of chuckle when I see that because it's almost like 
becoming an adjunct of the marketing department mm -hmm. of the studio. So, but go, going back to the a good sequel, I rewatched the um, 1982 version, and uh, you know, I, I am often I have these old great memories of movies that I watched 20 years ago, and then when you resurrect them today and watch them on a bigger screen and higher definition, they're sometimes disappointing. And I remember looking at Blade Runner and saying, wow, this is so primitive technologically. And even the sequel today was not quite as slow as the 82 was so plodding and moody and slow. Very somber. Um, how do you think our, the ways that we as humans consume on our smartphones and our iPads and in our cars and uh, headphones, how do you think the way that we consume uh, content has changed how filmmaking is done, how anything visual is done? I think our attention spans are not what they used to be. Just generally speaking, I mean, I know, you know, I look at my phone far too often. It is an addiction <laughs> at this point. I don't, I won't watch a movie on it because that just seems to be very disrespectful of the people who made the movie. Um, but yeah, we're, we're easily distracted. We have, there's so much to pull our attention away. Um, and, and also I think a lot of people don't like going out to the movies as much as they used to because they figure, hey, I got my, you know, extra special surround sound two million inch TV in my entertainment room. Um, and I just don't think that's the same experience as actually sitting in an audience in a movie theater. And that's, you know, it's sort of a romanticized view of it, but it's, I, I feel very strongly that way. Um, so, it is certainly, it is harder to get network. Let's talk about just for a second the movie we're watching tonight. Does this get made today? I doubt it. Um, it's certainly not boring, but I can see you know some studio executives saying, "How do we sell this? What's you know what's the tagline?" I guess you got the mad as hell, which would would help some there. Um, but you know how is it going? And I'm not. This is you know not a joke. How is how will it do in China? Um, I mean, that's such a huge part now of getting a movie greenlit is how will it do overseas. Um, so I think that I think that has drastically limited the kinds of films that get that get made these days and that get greenlit. How do you think home streaming, HBO, Netflix, and even the miniseries that get made um, has changed how we consume film and or TV? I think it's, it's given us, all of those things you mentioned have given us far more options than we've ever had. Um, I am, I'm not going to be one of the people that complains about Netflix and Amazon being in the production and distribution business. I think it's a great thing. Um, I think they are actually taking some of the chances that the movie studios are no longer taking. Um, I would like I, I like it when you have the option to either see it on the small screen or the big screen if that's going to be the case. Um, but I think the main way it's changed, I think it has opened up a lot of diversity, a lot more diversity um, for what kinds of films get made. And I think that's a really positive thing. 
Um, I think it has really given filmmakers a different way of looking at how to get their movies out there. And I, you know, I, think, I think that's a really positive thing. So I am, I am not anti-streaming, but I stream all the time. I'm not anti-streaming in any sense. Um, I just think when it comes to watching a movie, there's not really a substitute for sitting, sitting in a dark theater with other people. So two of my favorite movies of the... Absolutely, thank you. Um, two of my favorite movies of the past couple of years were actually were both foreign films. A Norwegian film called The Wave and uh, a Korean film called Train to Busan. Um, I heard about Train to Busan. That's the zombies on a train, zom- right? It's a Korean zombie movie. I need it to see that. It is perhaps the best zombie movie I have ever seen. Yeah. Um, how do you think films are, are being made in other countries and how do you think they're being made different than the U.S. and how is that circling back? Because now we can stream any of those movies. Yeah, and we're actually, and I should say we're lucky in Dallas too because we have more, multiple theaters now. I mean, you were, you were here when pre-Angelica, pre-Magnolia, you go to the pre, pre-Alamo, you know, there's the Inwood and there was the, uh, the UA Cine. Um, so now, you know, that's, there's more now. There are far more ways to see international films. Um, it really depends on the country when you're talking about style and, you know, for instance, South Korean films actually do better. South, I believe, I know it's either the only or one of the only countries where the native cinema does better than Hollywood, where Holly, the Hollywood colonization has not completely taken over. Um, I love being able to see, you know, I, lo- I love, it's one reason that I love festivals, film festivals, because you can see what's going on in other cinemas and other countries, what other artists are up to. Sometimes they're really different. Sometimes they're they're really not that different at all. Um, you know, I kind of I look back nostalgically at a time before I was born um, when you know the new Kurosawa movie. Well, I guess he, he was still going when I was alive. But you know, new Bergman movie or the new Fellini movie was like an event, and all the college or some of the college kids would go see it and talk about it afterwards. What does it mean? Now it's just Twin Peaks, the new... Yeah, well, and then it's, it has become much more, uh, much more f- fragmented and individualized in that sense. So, okay, so, uh, so what's up with Hollywood? You know, for the past couple of years, we've been talking about race and racism in Hollywood and the uh, success and ability for artists of color to be successful, and now... The past week, it's been about sexism and uh, a patriarchy in Hollywood. How do you think, I mean, in, in, in even looking at uh, uh, what Ryan Murphy's The Feud that talked about Baby Jane and, you know, the inside of the Hollywood making of that movie, how do you think Hollywood has changed from its golden age to now, and where do you think it will ultimately go? Well, I mean, the, the big difference between now and you know, the golden age, which I think, I guess we would consider maybe the 30s through the 50s, um, is that there isn't a studio system anymore. And the studio doesn't, the studio no longer owns the theaters where the movies play, and they no longer have the actors under pretty much, you know, ironclad contract. They can't use that as a, as a weapon in negotiations. Um, certainly viewership and film has become more diverse over the years. And at the same time, I mean, you, you, you're referring to what's, what's going on at, um, 
Weinstein Company and with, with Harvey Weinstein. Um, I think there was a time when that sort of behavior was just kind of, you know, complicitly accepted and it didn't bubble up and become an outrage as it is, it should be an outrage, it is an outrage. Um, so I think we're living in a time now where, and I think we're seeing pretty rapid change um, where things that were tolerated before getting to the point where they are not going to be tolerated anymore. Um, and I think that's a, that is also, I think, a very, um, a very positive change. And it's, this is, I, I get the feeling this is kind of, this is the first shoe I think we're going to keep hearing about other people, um, not just executives, but just people in the business who have sort of, you know, especially men in the business who, who have come up thinking they can grab whatever they want, including women. Um, and that that is a cultural sea change that, that I look forward to. Do you think it's unique to the movie system or just corporate America? I, oh, see, it's, I mean, I yeah. could see the same thing happening in oil companies or White House. manufacturing. I wasn't going there. But, um, uh, I mean, any, any, pay, any may, white male-led corporation. I think, no, I don't think it's exclusive to the movie business. Um, I do think the movie business is particularly unregulated in that sense. There are, you know, it's, it is still sort of a, you know, look the other way, wild, wild west kind of atmosphere where they might not have the, you know, the guidelines that get posted in another company about, say, sexual harassment. Um, and I think that leads to and sort of the atmosphere of, of permissiveness, um, which is unfortunate. Um, but no, it's absolutely not confined to, to the movies. Um, I think, you know, we've seen it happen in TV news um, last couple of years, and it's, I'm sure it's happening right now at, you know, lots of major corporations. So um, you, uh, you mentioned this earlier, that there's nothing like going to a theater and watching a movie as a communal experience, and that, I think, goes into that of, of human beings sharing communal experiences. But, I mean, every night in Dallas, there are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people seeing movies but a fraction of that seeing live theater or live music or dance or, or any of the other live uh, art forms. Um, not that they wouldn't, but why is it that movies have become so mainstream and yet the, uh, the rest of the arts uh, seem still so boutique-ish and less and less relevant? It's always, I think the movies have always been a sort of a populist art form um, to the extent that some might even say, you know, I, I certainly think it's an art form, but I think other people would argue that it's entertainment. And sometimes I don't really see what the difference is between the two, but it's always been, you know, the movies were something that, you know, early immigrants, I shouldn't say early, but early 20th century, late 19th century immigrants to America would embrace um, not just by going to the movies, but by owning studios. Um, you know, there are all, most of the early moguls were from immigrant families. So it's always had that sort of, you know, you can, it, it's accessible. And I think it, it remains that way. Um, 
I, you know, for instance, you mentioned all, you mentioned dance, which I have a lot of respect and admiration for. I have a, you know, a friend who writes about dance very well. I cannot write about dance very well. Um, that is something where I think, you know, real concrete training comes in handy. Um, classical music, you know, I really like going to the symphony sometimes, um, but I do not have that vocabulary to, um, you know, really go deep into what's happening and what I'm hearing. And I think a lot of other people might not as well. I think the movies give us something. We, we can all have an opinion about how well a movie was doing what it was trying to do. And those opinions differ. Um, but it's still, I get back to just the accessibility of it, I think, makes a big difference. And it's easy. You know, you, you, you go, you buy your ticket, you sit down, the lights go out. Um, you sit there, it's, you know, it's not as cheap as it used to be, but it's still, on the, for the most part, less expensive than a lot of the other culture that, you know, that you named, a lot of the other ways to go out and see the arts. Um, so yeah, I think, I think those are some of the reasons, anyway. So tell us about Network. Give us a primer on what we should look for tonight as we watch this film. I'm curious how many people have seen Network. So a great, a great many of you. Um, it's one of those movies that I think was almost prophetic as soon as it came out. And now it's just gotten more and more prophetic. And I'm curious to see it. I probably haven't seen it in five or six years. I was joking earlier that now it might even play like a documentary, <laughs> given what's, what is. It's, it's essentially about how entertainment took over the news, um, large, mostly, largely at a corporate level. And that, that, um, that, that ship has left the port at this point. But it's still such a big enough satire and still so incisive. Um, I mean, Patty Chayefsky is just a great writer. Um, that it's still, I don't know, it, I, I notice new things in it every time I see it. Um, it's also just got a, a hell of a cast. Um, uh, Faye Dunaway, is, of course, is great. Peter Finch won an Oscar for it. But people forget that Robert Duvall's in this movie in one of his really, really good 70s performances, just just craven as all get out. Um, you know, it's the kind of movie where Ned Beatty can show up for five minutes and just completely set the screen on fire and disappear. It's got all of these, these great grace notes like that. Um, and I think it, at the same time, it is really diagnosing, um, you know, what has happened, what had been happening then when the film came out in the 70s. And, just accelerated up to this point. Um, what happens when the news becomes entertainment? You know, what do we lose when that happens? I think that gets back to your question about attention spans, as well. Um, you know, that's it's really I, th I do think it's very important to be informed, and I like entertainment too. Um, I think what what network is looking at is a you know that really dangerous zone where there's no difference between the two anymore. Well, now you have CNN. I mean, it, it's 24-7. I mean, it is... It, you, and you want people to keep tuned in because the advertisers don't get paid if you don't stay tuned in. So it's more than just, when we get back, we'll tell you about thus and such. It's just on and on. And, and per, the cult of personality, I mean... 
Yeah. The, Anderson Cooper is as big a celebrity as anyone. And that's actually a really good point because this is very much the story that evolves and in network is very much about cult of personality because you have this man who is really going insane in a rather painful way and the network is just like, yeah, he's a hit. Let's keep him on there because, because yeah, well, <laughs> I, I didn't say that. Um, you know, this is fantastic. Um, you know, let's get this, let's keep this madman on the air and then create this whole circus environment around him. Um, so I think it, it really saw a lot of things coming uh, before they came. Let's open it up to the audience and see if we have any questions out here. In the, uh-huh. What movie have you bailed on? Yeah, I can't, I mean, I really can't, and I'm not just saying this because I'm being recorded. I, if I'm writing about a movie, I cannot bail on it as much as I'd like to at times, um, although it's been a while since, you know, like I said, I sort of cherry pick now. Um, but yeah, I've walked out of movies that just as a movie goer, and for some reason the one that, I, I love Mel Brooks, and I love, you know, Young Frankenstein and uh, Blazing Saddles are two of my favorite movies that came out the same year, which is amazing. Um, I could not watch Spaceballs. I went to see <laughs> Spaceballs in the theater when it came out, and I was probably about 20, I don't know, 20, something like that. And something about Mel Brooks when he's off, boy, is he off. And I just was like, it's, I'm not laughing at this. You guys laughing at this? No? All right, let's go get dinner. Now, Blazing Saddles is one of those movies that I remember nostalgically, and then I rented it a year or two ago, and I'm like... Wow, this is not what I remember. See, I still think it's hilarious. I, I do too, but the the pace and the rhythm and just how comedy works then is different than now. For me, it, it's Blazing Saddles is funny. It's one of those movies for me where it really does depend on what part of your life you're in. Because when you're a kid, you're just like, oh, this is hilarious. Farts. Yeah, exactly. Campfire scene. Um, and then you get a little bit older and you start getting maybe a little more serious. And you're like, well, I don't know. If this is as funny as I thought it was. And then hopefully, you know, they get a little bit older still and you stop taking things so seriously and you see what, how genius it is. That was, that's been my Blazing Saddles path. It's one of my favorite comedies now. Any other questions? Over here in the front. I was reading your column that you wrote about Marshall, which I can't wait to see. I mean, we, we see films, comedies, different genres that can unify people and, and distract us from all the bad things going on in the world. But how important do you think movies about social injustice and social justice from the past and the present play and how we as a country maybe can keep moving forward and kind of fighting against all the craziness that's going out there, our spirits, the human spirit. How important do you think those types of movies um, are for us as a society? I think it really depends on how good the movie is. I mean, I, I, th I think if you make a bad movie about an important subject, you're not doing the subject any favors. Um, if you make a really engaging, intelligent, relevant, energetic, powerful movie about 
something important that's going on in the real world, then you get people talking about it. And it really kind of you know, lets you think about it um, in a more imaginative way and perhaps opens your mind as well I th in this way I think network does that. Um, I like Marshall a lot because it, it, um, it made no bones about the fact that it was trying to be entertaining. It's not a, it's not a dusty look at this legal legend and civil rights hero. It's showing him as a young, swaggering lawyer um, who had appetites and you know was pretty arrogant, rightfully so. Um, and it somehow did not tarnish what's what was important about the man. And I think that's a really that's a rare combination when you can do both of those things. Um, you know, there's a movie I. Haven't, I haven't seen this movie yet, but there's a movie coming out about um, Edison that, and I'm sorry, my mind is blank. Westinghouse? Yeah. Um, that sounds really interesting, and yet the people I've talked to who have seen it are just kind of like, you know, this is, they kind of take these two fascinating characters and make them dull. Um, that's not doing the subject any, any favors, I don't think. So at the end of the day, it all, I think it all comes down to how good the actual movie is. Time for one more question. Um, all right, to bring this back to network, um, what do you think is the most important, um, effective scene in this movie and why? Just a simple question, just. Man, the one for some reason that always, I mentioned it is when um, he, the Peter Finch character, um, Howard Beale, goes into the executive's office and the executive is Ned Beatty and he's standing in this you know huge office and it's, and it's just the two of them and he's trying to explain why he wants to keep him on the air and he speaks to him in the same sort of madman prophetic terms that Howard Beale has been using and I think it's just the power of Beatty's performance and Beatty did that Beatty sh would show up I'm a big Ned Beatty fan he showed up in all the president's men for one scene and you're just like yeah that was a really good scene um, he, he, was, he was that kind of secret weapon character actor. He still is, actually. He's not doing as much now. Um, for some reason, that's always the scene that I think of when I, I, think he says, I think he says, you are meddling with the powers of nature, Mr. Beale. And Peter French just kind of stands there, and he's sort of aw awed by this, this corporate executive who is speaking his language. I've always found that to be a really eerie he gets and, me. He yeah, likes me. Exactly. Exactly. But I think but there are there are a great many of them. Um, I mean Beatrice Strait won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for this movie. She is in one scene. And she won an Oscar for that one scene. It's a really good scene. It's it's when she it's when he tells her that he's leaving. William Holden um, says he's leaving her and she sort of gives her response and it's just um, it's heartbreaking. It's um, it's incisive. Um, it's just a great scene. So that's that's another one. The the Beatrice the the scene that won Beatrice Strait the Oscar. All right. So we're going to finish up with our top ten short questions, oh, and these is lightning rounds. So a quick answer. First thing that comes to your mind. All right. Number one, pie or cake. Pie. Number two, Rolling Stones or the Beatles. Beatles. Your favorite style of bagel. 
Um, I like a toasted garlic bagel with plain cream cheese on it. The filmmaker, dead or alive, that you would most like to meet? Um, boy, that's tough. First thing that comes into my mind, mm -hmm. uh, Ingmar Bergman. Eiffel Tower or Empire State? Um, I will go Empire State. Your dream vacation spot? That I've never been to or that I've that I like going to. Did you like going to? I love, I, I never have a bad time in New York. The movie you've seen the most times? Probably, the movie I've seen the most times in a theater is Star Wars. I don't know if that, I don't know if that really counts though because I was like 10. <laughs> so, I've seen Goodfellas more times. I mean, I've memorized parts of, of that movie. I've seen Chinatown probably upwards of 10, 12 times. Wizard of Oz or Gone with the Wind? Wizard of Oz, no question. The one word that describes your writing style? Uh, really, re I'm sorry, that's more than one word. <laughs> um, the one word that describes my writing style? Brilliant. <laughs> your favorite, and this is the final, and I did not hit tip you off on this, your favorite Star Wars episode? My favorite of the movies? Mm -hmm. It's probably the first one. I mean, I th and some, sometimes I think, and I know this is getting long-winded, but sometimes I think Empire Strikes Back is a better movie, but there's something about that experience of first seeing Star Wars you know, the first dozen times and the impact that, you know, that it had on me as it had on you know, so many other movie lovers and even movie makers at this point. Great. Not Return of the Jedi. <laughs> Everyone, please help me uh, thank Chris Wagner. Thank you. And back to Kitty. And I will just reiterate the thank you to Chris Wagner. I know he has an incredibly hectic schedule, and he's just back from Europe and many other travels, but I think we have great insight, and thank you, Chris, so much for being here with Airtime. As you can see, we do have fans who also agreed that you need to see a movie in a theater and blend it with the arts. Anyway, a couple of things to share real quickly. Uh, don't forget to get a ricochet uh, schedule of events before you leave. Uh, secondly, if you haven't seen them, Chris is wearing great socks. They are. I just noticed them. And, oh, ODB socks. There you go. The next airtime, November the 14th, with Paulette Martsoff of Ali Kush Contemporary. She is the owner and designer, and her partner, Jim Lively, who is an artist in the movie. And they have just recently moved their business from Snyder Plaza in University Park to Richardson. And they're gonna be here to share about their design ethic and the arts. And the movie is going to be The Devil Wears Prada. Also, don't forget all of the airtime interviews are podcast on iTunes. So as soon as we can edit Chris's and make it as fine as possible, it will be on iTunes. Go check out some of the interviews you might have missed. And also, I wanted to thank Art and Seek for selecting this particular airtime as one of their picks of the week. So we appreciate that support. And thank you to all of you for coming. And please enjoy Network and look for those scenes that Chris talked about. Thank you all. Thank you.